0: Hi, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. If there's anything I've learned from making this podcast, it's that history is complicated. Memories fade, and sometimes stories are lost to the ether. And without records or reliable sources, you get left with flimsy history and urban legends. And that's exactly what led today's guest
1: to write about food. And then you just start hearing these urban legends and me as a and this is a funny thing like I just don't write about food but I'm actually an investigative reporter by nature like I've gone mm-hmm, after mm-hmm. pedophiles and freaking white supremacists so I know bullshit when I see it and so when I started hearing oh the margarita was named after Rita Hayworth or like burritos were invented at this nightclub in uh, Tijuana in the nineteen sixties. I'm like, okay, no, 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 no.
0: Gustavo isn't a culinary writer, per se, but he did find himself writing about what we eat.
1: My name's Gustavo Ariano. I am a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and for the purposes of this interview, I am the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America.
0: This wormhole episode is about the legend of the burrito. A dish with a hidden history, forgotten in the age of Chipotle's and Taco's Bell. We'll cover the burrito's origins and evolution, and learn all about the influences that created an emblematic American cuisine. That's after the break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups.
0: Gustavo had to become a burrito expert to learn the real history behind the dish. So let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell me about the earliest history of food in Mexico? Like, what were people eating?
1: The earliest food that people are eating, they're still eating it mostly today. Like, what people forget when we talk about Mexican food are also the ingredients. So tomatoes, chocolate, vanilla, amaranth, uh, obviously tortillas, masa. And then also of course you got your turkey, your um you know, obviously the seafood that was in the new world and corn, more than anything, corn. Those did not exist across the world until you had the conquest, spreading it across the world. You know, you didn't call them tacos, but people were getting a tortilla and putting food stuff inside a tortilla for, you know, when the Aztecs are you know, when the Aztecs were around and all of that. So yeah, I mean Everything eventually, of course, starts evolving, but at least, you know, when it comes to year zero, 1520, it was a 1519 mm-hmm. contact with Cortes and all that. It was all there.
0: What did the conquistadors do to traditional Mexican food?
1: Ate it. <laughs> they ate it, but they tried to also eradicate it. They did not like initially... Um, masa they try to introduce wheat and they you know in my book Taco USA I talk about how the the priests would try to tell the Aztecs and all that no like bread like wheat it's the the food of civilized people and and uh tortillas masa tamales it's the food of uncivilized people but what's interesting about the conquest versus, say, the English, you know, you, you have two genocidal co- colonizers with the Spaniards and the English, but the English just eradicated everyone. The Spaniards, they did synthesis. And I'm not I am not romanticizing this at all because the synthesis came through rape, came through killing, came through bloodshed. But at the end, that's what forged a, this new Mexican nation, a syncretism, a, a combination of all these different food stuff, or you know, all, all these different cultures and traditions and more importantly, with the food. So obviously the Spaniards, they brought over a lot of the ingredients that we think is Mexican food now, which is going to be like the meats, beef, chicken, pork, lamb, the, you know, some of the names like tortillas, not an uh, Aztec name, that's a Spanish word that was later on put into what we now know as tortillas. Taco, same thing. The word taco preceded the Aztecs. But, um, but that you know, Mexican food is not some pure indigenous uh, sacrosanct thing. It is a messy thing. And I think humanity is messy and, and, and humanity is brilliant. So that's what makes Mexican food mm-hmm. so brilliant and vibrant that we change. Right, of course. Mexican food is popular all across America. When did that start and why? As long as there's been Mexican food in the United States, there's always been the curiosity to try it. And once you try it, it starts becoming popular. We also have to understand everything wasn't as instantaneous as it is today. Back in Mm -hmm. the days, it took years, if not decades, for these trends to unspool. So in the 1880s, you start seeing people writing about Mexican food and specifically San Antonio and San Francisco to a lesser extent L.A., but really those two states. Then you you have some big thing called the 1892 World Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair, where you have the world coming into Chicago for an entire year and you have Mexican food there in the form of chile con carne, what we now call chili in cans, and the form of tamale vendors all over Chicago. And from there, those those two specific food items. Start spreading across the United States. The tamale men are become a staple of small town America. But for decades, it was black men. It was uh, Muslim men in the South. It was black men doing it. In the East Coast, it was Irish immigrants who were selling tamales. And then Chile, of course, Chile con carne becomes so assimilated that we don't even think of it as being Mexican anymore. We just think <laughs> of it as Texan food, or more likely Tex-Mex, and we put in our burgers and our do- hot dogs and our or you just eat you know chili from a can. Simple as that. And that. That sets a template, then, that is replicated almost every decade from the 1880s onward, but with a lowercase new style of Mexican food.
0: Right, and the other thing that you uh, you just touched on, which I'm curious about, is like these foods also change when they when when they spread, right? So uh, take I guess Chile for example, uh, Chile con carne. How how does that change when it gets to America?
1: Well, it was always in America. Well. Yes and no. I mean, we, we don't know who really started chili, chile con carne. Some people say it was actually an indigenous dish kind of mm-hmm. related to something called pemmican. So some people say chile con carne comes from that. But I mean, look, it's it's there in the name. It used to be called chile with an E. Now we know it as chili with an I, and you could eat it in cans. You weren't making it in cans mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1860s and the 1870s. People adapted to their tastes, but I, I think that's what we just do with food in general. I mm-hmm. think anyone who tries to keep it Pure is stupid and does not re- does not know how humans are. You always try to mess with things. You always try to improve on things. That's just the human condition. And the same thing with with tacos with Mexican food. I said at the top, you could go back to the Aztecs and see what they're eating. Mostly, like you could recognize almost all of it. But of course, we're not going to eat exactly the way they they did it. The not just through consumption but production of food, but because that's because things evolve. You uh, Food mm-hmm. evolves with the market. Food evolves with the people who want to make money off of it and want to eat it.
0: Um, but I do want to talk specifically about the burrito. Because I think the burrito... I know they're not like the Chipotle-style burritos we have today. But where did
1: it start? No one knows. Great. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> There's two trains of thought. What people can agree on is that it started in the borderlands. So, no, like... US Mexico border, northern Mexico, uh, southwest, because flour tortillas that's where they first started bubbling up in like the 1600s and all that. So we know that much. But both the state of Sonora, where flour tortillas, uh, f- where wheat was first tr- uh, planted en mass in the Americas uh, by the Jesuits of uh, uh, Father Kino and all those people, Sonora takes credit for the burrito because they, you know, th- They have that. That's where the flour tortillas uh, first reigned. Juarez also does. Uh, Ciudad Juarez, right across the border from El Paso. There's even an urban legend that goes with it that, oh, you know, some guy during the Mexican Revolution, he would sell uh, guiso stews and then he would put them inside a big flour tortilla and fold it up so people could eat them. And he was riding a burro, uh, a donkey. And so people would people called his dishes burritos. But again, it's basically what we see today. And people say, oh, you know, the mission style burrito, no one ate burritos that huge. But if you go to Sonora, they have flour tortillas called sobaqueras as big as basketball hoops. And what the miners (laughs) would do is put all their food in there, almost wrap it like a dumpling instead of like a burrito. Just Mm -hmm, put it together, mm -hmm. tie it in and then eat, eat the food like that or kind of like a Cornish pasty, if you will, just like. A big thing with a bunch of food in there that makes your meal. Um, but again, these are all urban legends. What we can say about burritos in terms of entering the United States, a cookbook author named Erna Ferguson included it in a in a cookbook, I believe in 1938. In the 1940s 50s, you start seeing burritos popping up in restaurants in California, but it's a slow unveil. And a lot of the the big taco chains, your Taco Bells, your Del Tacos, your Taco John's, although Taco John's later in the 60s, they had burritos on the menu. Your bean and cheese burrito, not too big, not too small, um, but they were an afterthought because Americans were more uh, interested in tacos, hard shell tacos than they Mm -hmm. were in burritos at the time. It seems like
0: Chipotle has had an outsized effect on burrito culture in America. And I'm curious if you can talk about that. Some
1: more. Yeah, no, beyond. Uh, so like I said earlier, you had these small, small burritos, pretty simple burritos uh, bubbling up across the United States, but not really hitting. In Los Angeles, you would have bigger burritos, uh, like classic chains like Allen B's, Lopez number two, uh, filled with just like your meat and beans. And that was that. Nothing else, really. But the origin story of the Mission Burrito goes as follows. There was a man named Febronio Ontiveros who owned a small taqueria called El Faro, the lighthouse. And so that one day two firefighters came in and said, hey, you know, we want a big, huge burrito uh, instead of buying a bunch of small ones. So Febronio got two flour tortillas, put them together, laid out his ingredients, folded them, and the firefighters really liked that burrito and they asked for more. So when I did the book, Talk You Say, it sounds like a really outlandish, easy story. There, Como se this in, in English? There's some resonance to it because the first thing I'm like, okay, where do these firefighters come from? And it's as it so happens, there's a fire station like within walking distance of this burrito place. So I'm like, okay. So that kind of rings to me. And you know, this place did exist in the early 1960s and Febronio did start selling these big burritos. He just started you know, uh, they, you would make flour tortillas in the United States by then, of course, but nothing nothing as big as what we now know as a Mission-style burrito. So he went to a tortilla factory, told them like, hey, can you make a bigger flour tortilla? They made it, then he started selling them. And then that's where you start getting all the other classics of the San Francisco-style burrito. Yeah, you, you know, you have El Cumbre, Pancho Villas, um, La Taqueria itself, that's just the name of it, La Taqueria, my personal favorite, El Castillito, Really in the 80s, people start romanticizing them, start lionizing them. And that's where it gets a name, the Mission Burrito. And it's called Mission because the barrio, the historical barrio in San Francisco, where all the Latinos would come in, not just Mexicans. And that was the Mission District. So all these burrito places ended up in the Mission District, and hence it got called the Mission Burrito. Mm -hmm. So it's a thing. It's a trend. But it's only a San Francisco thing. And then you get a guy named Steve Ells from Colorado who goes to study at the Culinary Institute of America, works under Jeremiah Towers, this you know, legend in high-end food. You know how they are. I mean, if we're you're yeah. talking about food, so mm-hmm. you know how they are. Late nights, hey, let's go get some grub. And depending on where you live in the United States, a grub could be Chinese food, it could be Vietnamese food. It could be a soul place or it could be a Mexican place, Wherever's open, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, Steve Ells falls in love with this mission-style burrito. He specifically calls out a place called uh, Zona Rosa, the pink zone in Mexico City. Goes back to Colorado, thinks of opening up a high-end restaurant, but then realizes like, it could be far cheaper for me. I could put out more stuff. It's not gonna get me as much prestige as a high-end place, but we can make it happen. And, and what was key to this, was that the people who fell in love with the mission style burrito, the people who lionized it were immigrants, people coming into San Francisco, moving Mm -hmm. in from elsewhere, mostly white people lionizing it. And so when Steve goes back to Denver, Denver already had its own vibrant burrito culture, but Denver starts seeing people from other places come in. They're not really into the Denver style burritos, which is kind of like, you'd have like what we would call a wet burrito, but there they called smothered burrito. I, I really like them, but for new Denverites, Oh, you have a huge burrito and I could customize it. So the whole idea of Chipotle customizing, he also stole, he also got inspired <laughs> by uh, the Mission District where you would have basically like stations. If you yeah, like yeah. the way San Francisco and especially the Mission District is, you have these buildings that are narrow, but go back wide. It's kind of compact, but it's long. So that's where you have like, okay, here's one place right next to each other. You get the beans, the rice, your meat. Vegetables, your sour cream station, your cheese station, whatever. Boom, 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 boom. So I think for Americans coming in and into Denver, they liked it. Steve starts escalating it, and he starts crucially starts opening up in college towns where people need to eat fr- fast, fr- cheap food that's going to fill you up. So it's really college students that made burritos popular across the United States. And more crucially, though, because Chipotle became so popular. The idea of a burrito being so big, which never existed really outside of San Francisco before, it became codified because of Chipotle and then all of its uh, imitators.
0: Right, right. It's funny because I do find myself occasionally uh, longing for smaller burritos. Um, (laughs) I found one place near me that does smaller burritos and I'm eternally grateful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing like the smallest burritos, I would say, well, there, there are small burritos. Like if you go to uh, El Paso, El Paso has an amazing burrito tradition culture, but it's very much informed not by American taste, but by Mexican taste, because you're right there on the border. And so it's interesting. We talk about the stations of the burritos with chipotle. In El Paso, yeah, you have all these different like, con- like uh, containers full of stuff, but it's all different guisos. It's all stews. Mm-hmm. So here's like, pork one chorizo boom boom like so every morning these uh, these burrito chains or burrito uh, emporiums in El Paso they'll make up these fresh guisos and they're just amazing and they're small guys like they're they're small guys mm-hmm. like i think you eat, like eat 2 to 3 of them you'll ha- you'll be full but nowhere near as full as you would with a uh, mission style burrito or a style burrito there you have it the history of the burrito
0: all wrapped up in a convenient podcast tortilla but After the break, the somber side of the burrito's history We're back. I'll let Gustavo take it away.
1: It's interesting with burritos becoming as, like, American and hailed and a must eat item because if you really <laughs> want to get into it in the annals of chicano literature when you talk about burritos it's usually in a shameful way i mean you have all these stories of mexican kids especially from the 60s into i would argue into the 90s even in southern california bringing a burrito to lunch and kids mocking them like oh you're a mexican oh uh, you know and like it the, the The sadness is real. When you had the Bracero program, which was uh, what Mexico and the United States got into an agreement for Mexico to bring up uh, men to work in the fields legally, but they couldn't stay here and they'd have to return. Uh, These farmers would get this Mexican labor and they would feed them food and they wanted to be as cheap as possible, but also filling. So they would give them burritos, just simple you know, get the flour tortillas, make the beans, the rice, stuff them in there. Well, a lot of those Mexican braceros, they were coming from central Mexico where burritos did not exist. That's the thing. In Mexico, burritos only exist in northern Mexico, in the borderlands. So you have these Mexican immigrants eating Mexican food that they've never had before. So these burritos would make them homesick. It's really sad. <laughs> it's really <laughs> sad. Oh, like That is very sad. Like you and I both laugh and I laugh alongside with you, but it's sad because oh. you read these Again, these testimonials and the heartache is real, and the hunger pangs are real. It's like it's it's yeah. pretty remarkable.
0: So this reminds me. I'm curious about frozen burritos. What's the deal with that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Again, someone takes credit. No one really says otherwise. Dwayne Roberts claims he invented the frozen burrito in the 1960s, but he definitely became a millionaire off of them. He actually became a Southern California legend based on on his millionaires and look at look at look at how it all connects he buys this legendary famous hotel called the Mission Inn in Riverside so mm-hmm. not Mission Burritos but based on the wealth the millions of dollars that he made off Burritos he ends up buying this big huge hotel and yeah th- that was uh, the mission Inn is the hotel that Burritos bought
0: Let's end this episode like you would a nice dinner. With a little dessert. So you mentioned chocolate earlier.
1: Oh. <laughs> I love chocolate. Uh, yeah, same, same.
0: I think it's delicious. I am curious about uh, the development of chocolate in this, in the same sort of sense, because I think, you know, I think it's interesting to see how how long the lineages of this these foods actually are and, you know, how much they've retained since the beginning, because that's the thing that's surprising to me right now is, like, I sort of expected that, like, the Chipotle-style burrito was not especially historically accurate. But you're telling me it's, like, at least 50% more
1: than I assume. (laughs) Uh, Well, here's—this is something that a lot of people don't realize about Mexican food is that, oh, yeah, that's fake, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. It's real. And at one point it was, quote unquote, more real at one point it was like hard shell tacos were considered authentic because it was Mexicans who actually created them. The mission style burrito was created by Mexicans Mm -hmm. in the Mission District. They get watered down once they get commercialized and then they get spread across the country. And then sadly, it robs the Mexicans that created them of their agency. Like when, like chocolate, no one ever thinks of chocolate as Mexican anymore. But I could tell you where it started it was Mexico. The cacao beans came from Mexico, vanilla came from Mexico, the Spaniards took cacao with them almost immediately, but couldn't get vanilla because the only people who knew how to uh, create vanilla were, were the Totonacos, an indigenous group right there on the uh, the Gulf of Mexico State, Veracruz. And to get the vanilla, you know, the vanilla comes from a uh, vine, which flowers, and you have to uh, manually pollinate these flowers, and only the Totonacos knew how to do it until the 1800s where an enslaved man in, I think of Reunión, mm-hmm. was an enslaved man who, Found the trick of how to hand pollinate and then from there vanilla becomes the thing that it came before. So I think what you see, the the through line with all these different stories of Mexican food and its popularity is one of conquest and appropriation. Right. And I I don't mind people cooking the food. I don't mind I, I have no problem with uh, you know, white folks making their own cookbooks, making their own food, making their own millions. I really don't because the food just takes on a life of its own. But if you're gonna do that, then acknowledge where the food came from. Acknowledge the pioneers, acknowledge, you know, the men and women and the indigenous groups that either gave these foods to the world if you wanna be charitable or had their foods taken from them and appropriated them. Name them, say their names, you know? That's a lesson
0: I think we can take beyond the culinary world. Cite your sources, people. Special thanks to Gustavo Ariano. For more culinary history, check out his book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. And you can find more of his work in the LA Times or follow him on Twitter at Gustavo Ariano. Next week, we're taking a break, but we'll be back in June for a four-part series about the 1980 Olympics and the athletes who broke the boycott. So, see you then. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Kenyon-Meyer. We're produced by Tanita Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon meyer The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheyer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijan Case. Thanks for listening. See you next time.